Welcome to the curiosity of sight. 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 Yes, the child is dead. Well, he's not dead. He's actually grown up and he's now a teenager. So we've gone for a subtle name change. Um, so what are we going to be talking about this week, Anton? We're taking a close look at sight, seeing, eyes, the perfect subject for a podcast. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so what we're going to do instead with our naming is each episode we've got a topic and that becomes the name. Um, so we are hoping to cover all the senses in the future, but we're going to start with sight as it's probably the dominant primary sense for humans. So what are we going to be learning? Well, we're going to look at the evolution of eyes from the very earliest ones, simple light-sensitive cells uh, through compound eyes all the way to human eyes. And along the way, we're going to meet scientists who made these discoveries and also look at some of the more interesting um, experiments that they did. Um, and I've actually got a few things laid out in front of you. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, so shall we begin? On with the show. Okay, Anton, close your eyes. How am I meant to read the script? <laughs> you don't have to read the script right now, don't worry. Yeah, so your eyes are shut and all you can probably see is, well, darkness and maybe some shadows and some shapes. So slowly open them. And then as you... <laughs> <laughs> so, so as you open your eyes, you probably saw more form appearing, didn't you? Mm-hmm. So um, what I want you to do is actually imagine travelling back 3.7 billion years to the Earth, and it's a very different place back then. And life is actually just starting to appear, but it's in a really simple form at the moment, and it's just going to be single-celled organisms. Where did early life, where did these primitive creatures, where did they get their energy from? I don't know. <gasps> the sun. The sun, yeah, and also maybe geothermal vents in some cases, deep in the sea. Oh yeah, I should have known that as well. <laughs> but it's the ones that got their power or their energy from the sun that we're interested in. So they would have got their power from what we call the visible spectrum of light and maybe a little bit beyond, say from infrared to ultraviolet. Now you get smaller wavelengths of light like gamma rays, but those actually have too much energy and they're damaging for cells. And then you have longer ones like radio waves, but those are too big and weak and they'll actually be bigger than the creatures themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so our lovely sun, you know, it throws out loads of energy at just the right wavelengths for life. Or maybe life has evolved actually to adapt to the wavelengths that it throws out. If that's giving you your energy, yeah, it's going to be really, really useful for creatures to learn how to sense it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. If you can actually start to detect it and sense it, then you're going to have an evolutionary advantage, aren't you? Yeah, you can see things. Exactly, yeah, and you can find that light. You can go towards that source of light. You can go out of shadow. And that might be why about three billion years ago, some tiny, tiny little creatures started to develop little eye spots. Now, do you remember when we looked at different things under the microscope and some of them had tiny little red dots on them? Yeah. So what do you see in this picture I've got here? I see a green sort of long thing. <laughs> uh, it's got a red spot where I guess a head would be. It's like a microorganism uh, and it has, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a tiny microorganism and it's got a little red eye spot on it. And um, that is light sensitive. And it doesn't give it a view of the world like you and I have. Um, it just gives a response to light and shade. Like when you slowly open your eyes or in the morning, if you've got your eyes shut and the sun's shining on you, you hold your hand in front of it, you'll be able to see that shadow, won't you? <coughs> Excuse me. If you look at the sun, you might sneeze. And this is so basic, they can't even detect the direction of the light, just if it's present or not. 
So over billions of generations, spanning billions and billions of years, um, this tiny eye spot would sometimes have mutations and either get better or worse. So what's one really basic improvement you could think of from something that literally just senses light or shade? Uh, sensing it from a direction. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so some of these mutations might make a little concave shape, so that's a little depression, where the eye spot was situated. So think of that like a curved mirror that can reflect light from all different directions. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as you've got that, you've got a slight advantage. If you're able to move, you can start moving towards your source of light and all that amazing um, life-giving energy, can't you? And um, for a very, very long time, not much more actually happened. Oh. Yeah, that was basically as far as life had got. Eyes are amazing. We're going to tell you about how they might have caused the biggest leap in evolution and actually led to the development of complex life forms. And this was during an event called the Cambrian Explosion. <laughs> so at this point, most life is still in the ocean and it's 451 I've got numerical dyslexia. It's 541 million years ago and life is still pretty boring. I mean, what's that look like, mate? Green splodge. Yeah, a bit of a green splodge. But go to 485 million years ago and life is rocking. I mean, look at that. That That's a lot cooler. Yeah, so what's that, going... It looks like underwater beetles. Uh-huh. Um, lots of crustacean-y sort of things. Yeah, almost like half crustacean, half fish, some of them. It's really odd, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so the Cambrian explosion was a really, really important um, event in evolution. And it's when we started to actually have life branching into all these different forms, like mollusks or worms or sponges or anthropods, all sorts, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's uh, the Cambrian explosion? That That is the name of the this... Um, event event yeah so all of million. them all of them becoming more advanced yes yeah yeah so the explosion is that explosion in the diversity of life it's don't, don't yeah. think of it like a volcano explosion or something so what do you think might have actually caused this rapid evolution and this whole slew of new body plans to emerge mm, a change in temperature or something or a change in environment that's a very good suggestion, and there may have been some of that going on there, which my research hasn't covered. But one of the other major factors is quite possibly eyes. So how do you think eyes could have done that? Um, they can see food, mm -hmm. um, and they can see food. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's a lot of it. They can see food, um, or they can see predators. So imagine you're a little creature swimming around and at first you're only able to detect light and shadow. You're going to be at massive disadvantage to a predator that's able to see you mm. and able to start hunting you. So even having some really rudimentary form of sight would offer a really big survival edge if you're the hunter or the hunted. So organisms that developed eyes or better eyes, they part, they're more likely to survive than pass their genes on. And they'd also have things like hunters and prey would need different types of eyes. So if you want to be able to see something, you want to have like eyes like, uh, if you're a hunter, you want to have eyes like us looking forwards so you can focus on it and have binocular vision and judge your distances and catch mm -hmm. it. But if you are um, prey, you want you to be want more... You want to see all around you. Exactly. Yeah. Think of a deer or something or a gazelle with the eyes on the side compared to a cheetah. So all of these amazing new creatures that were evolving during the Cambrian explosion, they are actually your ancestors. Eyes and sight is so good that it may actually have evolved up to 60 times 
independently in the evolution of animals. Right. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And some animals even have more than one type of eye. So we're going to take a look at a few eye types now, okay? Or you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I've already mentioned photoreceptor cells, which are these tiny small eye spots. Um, but what's going to be better than a single light detecting cell? Lots of light detecting cells or eye spots. They first appeared 540 to 600 million years ago. Eye spots are clusters of photoreceptor cells that can detect the direction of light and shadow. Jellyfish and flatworms are examples of creatures with primitive eye spots. Because jellyfish don't have anything. They're literally like a blob. <laughs> yeah. The next step in eye evolution is pigment cup eyes, 500 to 540 million years ago. These eyes are slightly more advanced and consist of a pigment cup that partially encloses the photoreceptor cells. This structure allows for a limited sense of direction of light. Snails have pigment eye cups on their little... What are those called? They're not really antenna, are they? No. Actually, yeah, just eye stalks. <laughs> yeah, eye stalks. Eye tentacles. Yeah. Eyes now take a bit of a leap from sensing light to focusing light. About 400 million years ago, creatures such as the Nautilus evolve pinhole eyes. They have a small hole in the pigment cup that focuses light and allows more precise detection of direction. So not only were these changes improving the eyesight, but they're also starting to improve the protection of the eye. So as eyes change from flat spots to depressions to holes, they start to become more resilient to damage. But they're still pretty basic though, aren't they? That started to change though with compound eyes like insects have. They evolved 500 to 540 million years ago. Unlike single lens eyes, compound eyes are made of lots of individual lenses called amazotia, each with their own photoreceptor cells. They are like lots of separate eyes clustered together as one. Yeah, that's actually a little bit like some flowers, um, because they're not one big flower, they're actually loads of tiny little flowers all clustered together in Fibonacci spirals. Mm-hmm. And then the yellow petals around the outside, they're actually another specialised type of flower called a ray floret, and their bright colour is designed to attract insect eyes. Um, so without sight, we wouldn't actually need things that look so beautiful. Well, and that's the moral of this podcast. <laughs> If you look at a photo of insect eyes, you can see the dense geometric arrangement of segments. Each one captures the light. Together they create a pixelated view of the world like a low quality digital photo. But some insects can move their retinas inside each compound, which may mean their sight is better than we previously thought. Some nocturnal moths may even be able to see colour using only starlight. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? No wonder they're attracted to lamps. Many insects can see polarised light. This lets them know where the sun is in the sky, helps them find prey and detect water. Dragonflies have the largest compound eyes. Their hunters need to be able to spot fast-moving prey on the wing. Compound eyes are really good at seeing movement. This is why you shouldn't wave your hands at wasps, as it helps them see you. So this is something called optical flow and it's used to judge distance, and it's how quickly the pixels change when they are watching something. So if, if you imagine something really far away, if their eyes are made of lots of little sections, that's going to change very slowly, isn't it? But then as it gets closer to something, that's going to more rapidly change. One of the ways they discovered this was by um, 
showing cockroaches Star Wars. So they get them to watch it um, because there's lots of shots there where you have spaceships and things flying towards you. So they would quickly, rapidly fill the screen. And then that's how they can judge distance and movement. And it's also why you watch a fly like bang into a white wall or something. Piece of white wall is a solid color. You can't do any, um, it, it can't see any change in its sight and mm -hmm. it'll bump into it. Can they not see, that's the sea with windows and stuff. They would just be able to see through it or it just fills their entire view still. They'd just be seeing through it there. Yeah. Yeah. Except for they don't know what a window is. Mm. There's actually a few different types of compound eye. And do you know what trilobites are? No. Have a look at the picture on screen now. Still don't know. <laughs> Imagine like giant aquatic wood lice type things. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um, so they were around in the Cambrian period as well. And they actually had really cool lenses because they were made of calcite. And that's actually crystal. And it's similar to what uh, seashells are made from, uh, but it's arranged in such a way to be transparent, like a window. Um, and some of them actually had two lenses in their eyes, which would give them amazing like depth of field. So you imagine when you've got a photo of like an ant or something and you've got a really short focal length. It'd be mm -hmm. like that, like really incredible. Uh, but what's amazing is we can actually study the individual lenses that we find in fossils and then use the shape in those fossils to understand how that would affect their vision and their work out how trilobites would have lived in their ecosystem based on what we understand from their eyes. That's not the only type of lens they had either because um, some of the eyes would become more pit-like in shape and then they'd grow membranes over them, which would offer like a protective coating over time or different ways of focusing light. And then you get these amazing light structures of all these compound eyes and variations depending on um, the environment in which they're living. So what's clear here is that from like five to 600 million years ago, we're starting to get a really radical development in different types of eyes branching out in all different directions. And with that, different types of body shape and body forms. Um, because once animals can see, they can start to predate. And once they can predate, you need to start being able to hide from your predators, don't you? If you're prey. Um, but none of these eyes are like mine or yours, though, are they? Or most of our listeners, for that matter. So what happens next? Sometimes more isn't better. Rather than hundreds of thousands of compound lenses, one single big lens is better, like invertebrates and cephalopods. Our eyes are soft and squishy with muscles that change the shape of the lens, allowing us to focus on different objects. Our big lenses direct light onto lots of individual photoreceptor cells inside the eye that combine to create a single detailed image. But not all eyes use lenses to refract and focus light. Lobsters use mirrors to reflect and focus it. Their eyes are covered in a mesh of perfect square mirrors that channel the light. Yeah, they're amazing. It's like a, a grid of mirrors. That's so weird. But lobsters are really strange creatures. Mm. Um, so, do you know what cephalopods are? Is that um, squid? They have amazing eyes, quite similar to ours, but they developed independently of ours. But it's what's called convergent evolution, where you have two separate organisms evolving in a very similar manner to create very similar solutions to a problem. Um, but one key difference between an octopus eye and, say, a human eye is that in octopuses, the nerve cells are behind the retina. Mm -hmm. But then in human eyes, the nerves actually pass through a gap in a retina. And that's what gives us our blind, blind spot. spot. yeah. Exactly, yeah. Our um, nerve cells actually have to be transparent to allow the light to pass through them. But they're not 
totally transparent. They do actually block your vision slightly, where the nerves are going onto the front of your retina and all the blood vessels and everything. So that actually tells us something really interesting about human sight. And that's that something that doesn't move in our vision will actually disappear. We will edit it out of our perception. So something's kept totally still. For how long? I don't know how long that has to be. I don't think it has to be that long. Um, so if you could keep your eyes perfectly still, <laughs> we should try now. Didn't work. <laughs> Didn't work, okay. But th there were some experiments done where they'd actually stick uh, like on contact lenses, basically, something in front of the eye mm -hmm. and with a spot on or a bright light and that would vanish. It also gives us a second interesting feature of our eye. Like you said, there's the blind spot. So you've got a book in front of you, which if you carefully pick that up without disturbing the secret item beneath it and turn to page 46, please. Oh, nice. Okay, so on page 46, you should find a diagram. And on the diagram, there is a cross on the left-hand side and a circle on the right-hand side about five centimetres apart. Mm -hmm. Okay, you want to hold that up in front of you at about arm's length at first. Um, so you close your left eye, hold the book in front of you so that you're looking at the cross with your right eye, so it's in front of that. And then keep looking directly ahead and slowly move it closer to your face. There we go. Now that's what's gone. Yeah, about 15 centimetres away. Yeah, so the spot vanishes. But what do you see there? Uh, it's filled it in with the, the grey around the spot. Yeah, exactly. Really weird, isn't it? So the dot disappears um, and it's replaced by the grey background colour. So you, your brain has filled that in, hasn't it? It's, it's invented what's there. Mm -hmm. What can get quite scary is imagine you have a problem in part of your eye and part of your retina gets damaged and you can't see a portion. But say where my hand is now, imagine I can see that. My brain's going to fill that in with what it thinks should be there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it could even put a person there or something weird. Ugh. Yeah. And then so you, you get maybe more often with elderly people, they might be talking to somebody who isn't there, but it's because they've invented that there where their brain has. That's weird. That kind of reminds me of if you're trying to get AI to make a photo and it just adds something random. Oh, yeah, it reason. is. Yeah. 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 You can also make people's heads vanish into your blind spot, apparently, if you get in just the right place. <laughs> we'll try that later. Yeah, we'll try it later. <laughs> What's really, really weird, though, is even though you've got your blind spot there and we said that things disappear, there have been some experiments where they will hold a stick either vertically or horizontally in somebody's blind spot. And the the person in the experiment, they've actually been able to detect the angle correctly. Mm. So even though we can't see it, there's something that might be like your other eye crossing over. It's what happens when you've got your nerves going in from your eyes, whilst most of the nerves... A quick post-production correction here. Whilst most of the nerves go back to the same side of the brain that the eye is on, the actual left-hand side of the right eye goes to the left of the brain, and the right-hand side of the left eye goes to the right of the brain. Sight is about a lot more than just seeing light. Listen to episode 29 of the podcast where we talk about perception. Do it, do it, do it, do it. That's a good episode, that one. Interactive as well. Mm. Back when it was called The Curious of a Child. Yes, I mean, we release episodes regularly rather than once every three months. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sorry about that, guys, although it's not entirely my fault. No, no, I've been busy. Things have happened. Um, anyway, so I think that's a fairly good foundation to how our eyes work, don't you? 
Yes. Yeah, so we should, should we find out about some of the people who actually performed the experiments and discovered how we know what we know today? Suppose. Okay. <laughs> well, in previous episodes, we've occasionally learned about how the Greeks weren't always as clever as um, people would like to have you believe, yeah? So, do you know about any of their theories of sight? How they thought it worked? Um, I remember one, but I don't remember it. If that makes sense. Okay, should we cover it then? Okay. How about laser? Oh yeah, 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 I do remember. Yeah. They thought that you shot lasers out of your eyes, and then it bounced back. I think it was, or is it just yeah? Yeah, yeah, pretty much like laser eyes. So, um. Epidocles, he was a Greek philosopher and was born around 994 BCE. And he established the idea that um, we have the four elements, fire, earth, air and water that make up everything. And that wasn't the only thing he got wrong. He thought that our eyes emitted rays that they'd reach out into the world and touch objects, like you can touch with your hands, and that actually allows us to see stuff. Um, and then the ambient light that you'd have from the sun, whatever, that was the medium through which these rays passed and if there was no lights, that meant our rays wouldn't work and we wouldn't be able to see anything. So he basically had the theories backwards because we don't emit light, do we? We receive it. But apparently he also lived 109 years old mm-hmm. and um, he jumped into Mount Etna and telling his followers that he would return as an immortal god. <laughs> um, but when the volcano belched up one of his bronze sandals, um, it revealed the truth of his death to his disciples. <laughs> He did that 109. Apparently. I don't okay. think he lived that long. Mm-mm. Maybe it was dog years. <laughs> what would he be then? Like 12? 12 or something, yeah. He did it. Okay, I'll let him off then. He did quite well for a 12-year-old. Um, do you want to hear another Greek theory? Yes. Do you remember uh, Lucipius? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the, the atomist. Guy, yeah. That's right. Well done from our Elements episode. Now, they had the brilliant understanding that the world is made up of loads of tiny particles, didn't they? Which they called atoms. But they also carried that idea over to how they thought eyes worked and how we see. Um, So they proposed the idea that objects release thin films of atoms Mm -hmm. or particles or idola. And that they will fly at you from whatever you're looking at and enter the eye. And they'll be understood directly by your mind. And for them, that explains why you could work out what something is from a different angle. So if you look at a chair from one side or another angle, the shape's really different, isn't it? Yeah. But you still know what it is. So that's like, Well, yeah, like that. Some of the chair illusions you can see where um, it might just be fragments of stuff and it turns into a chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a good thought, that. So there's actually a few flaws with this idea, aren't there? So if objects are constantly emitting these layers... Um, why don't they just quickly dissolve into nothing? Hmm. And what about a mountain? I mean, how does a mountain fit in your eye? And if you have all these particles of everything flying into your eyes, wouldn't they just interfere with each other and just make a mishmash like a Kandinsky painting or something? (laughs) So none of these early ideas um, of sight were looking in the right direction. Drum roll, please. I, I, (laughs) I think you were meant to do like a laughing sound effect then. Uh, sorry, well, it wasn't very funny. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, um, but they did form our early understanding of sight for a very, very long time until an Arab scholar by the name of Ibn al-Haytham 
uh, decided to shake things up. Now he lived during the Islamic Golden Age and that took place in the 10th and 11th centuries. And he was a scientist, a philosopher, mathematician, and he contributed greatly to our understanding of optics and vision. And he was a true scientist, so he actually sought empirical evidence for his ideas. So you do you know what that means? Um, not really. Okay, so it's a really important part of the scientific process. So rather than just creating theories, you actually look for evidence. So you find the idea that proves theory true through experimentation and evidence. That's a good idea. It so is. just saying, like, this is it. Exactly, yeah. Different to how the Greeks were thinking, where they were just philosophizing on it. Let's actually do try it. and... Yeah, let's do it, exactly. An idea is a shell without any filling of evidence. Yeah. Ibn al-Haytham, he was born in Basra in Iraq, but he got invited to Cairo by the Caliph al-Hakim, but the Caliph wanted him to design a way to control the flooding of the Nile. So that's a really important task, because that basically manages the fertility of their crops. entire kingdom, yeah, and their mm -hmm. crops. Um, now, the Caliph, he wasn't a particularly nice man, and he'd given an impossible task to um, Ibn al-Haytham. Um, and the Caliph, he actually ordered the persecution of many different peoples during his reign. And so it's said that he so disliked the barking of dogs that he decided to have them all killed. And that's why Empedocles was thrown in the volcano at 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For, well, 109 dog years. Yeah. Well, do you want to know the worst thing that the Caliph did? Okay. He banned watercress. Watercress. Like I said, he's not a very nice man. So what do you do if a horrible man gives you an impossible idea? Kill them. <laughs> not quite. You feign insanity. Oh, yeah. That's a bit like what um, some theories about Claudius did after Caligula. Because basically he'd probably be killed if he wasn't pretending to be crazy. Oh, or yeah. he was actually crazy, but yeah. Uh-huh. Is that the one who had the pet rock? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he might have done it to act crazy. Yes. Very clever. Plan sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ibn al-Haytham, he actually spent 12 years under house arrest and during this time he conducted his greatest work. So I don't know if he did this or if it was done to him, but anyway, the windows of his house were blocked up. So he needed to use candles to um, illuminate indoors. And then he started to explore how light behaved and he set up mirrors and lenses and put holes in walls and all sorts of things. And he's the guy who discovered that light actually moves in straight lines. Then they'd build camera obscurers and it'd study like the optics of the eye. And through all of that, he started to understand how vision itself might work. And his key discovery was intermission theory. And that's that light travels to the eye. And there it's focused by the lens and onto our retina at the back of the eye. And the image is inverted like a, um, inverted, like a camera obscura. And there's one of his amazing diagrams of the eyes there. So his most famous work is called the Kitab al-Manzia. And that translates as the Book of Optics. And it was considered one of the most influential books in the history of optics. So back to the Caliph. He mysteriously died in 1021. So um, Ibn al-Haytham, he announced that he was no longer mad and he had been faking it all along and is allowed to go free. <laughs> this feels like, I mean, it is a bit of a way off yet, but... This feels like a completely different era to the Battle of Hastings sort of time, which is it does, fairly it? soon. This doesn't feel right. That's the other thing about history, actually, how 
Yeah, I saw some. I saw some video where like where it's comparing things which you didn't expect to be together. This isn't an example, but it could be like the Prussian Empire was at the same time that cavemen existed in Antarctica or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) things like that. The one I find really odd is I always think that the Romans in my head they feel like they came after the Anglo-Saxons in England, Mm. and um, like the Arthurian legends, they always feel older to me. In some I way. see that, yeah. Okay, back to eyes. The discoveries that he made, they posed a problem because as we've said a couple of times, the eye inverts the image, doesn't it? So how could it be that we see everything the correct way up? This led to a bit of a dilemma and split the world in two. The external one, which we sense, and the internal one created by the brain. But don't worry, because that's not actually a problem we're going to worry about today. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> because we've got another thousand years of history to cover. And I want to talk about a couple more people who looked at how the eye worked. So we've got two types of light-sensitive cells in our eyes, don't we? Yeah. Do you remember what they are? Uh, cones and rods. Yes. And what do they do? Sense light. <laughs> <laughs> I always get them mixed up. Um, okay, so yeah, you've got your rods and cones in your retina, but they're not evenly spaced out. And you've got more rods around the outside and you've got your cones in the middle, okay? And your, your rods, they don't pick up colour, but your cones do. Uh, so what this means is actually the vision in your periphery has less colour in it, but it's more sensitive to light. So that's why in your maybe you're lying in bed um, in the dark mm-hmm. and you see a little light in the corner of your eye, don't you? Mm. And what happens if you turn towards it? You see a horrible, scary figure. Coming out of the wardrobe. <laughs> no, that, that's just me. Oh, But okay. imagine I'm not there. Yeah. What do you see when you turn to look at a tiny little sparkly light? It disappears. Yeah, it disappears. That's because your rods are less light sensitive and they're more in the middle of your eye. No, your cones are more in the middle of the eye. Your cones are more in the middle <laughs> of your eye. Thank you. God, I'm rubbish at this. <laughs> um, now, you have three types of cone you, and they detect red light green light and blue light. Now, red and green, they're more heavily clustered towards the centre, and then you have more ones detecting blue light kind of around the outside, but still the outside of the middle, yeah? Mm-hmm. Then only the very centre of your eye sees things at full resolution. So if you hold your arm out in front of you, like this, with your thumb up. Now look at your thumb now. Oh, uh, yeah. It's the only part of your eye that sees at full resolution. Everything beyond that actually starts to get less and less detailed. So our eyes are really good, but also really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So that tiny little point is brilliant, but the rest of it isn't so good and it doesn't need to be. We've already said that if you keep your eyes perfectly still, things disappear from your vision. So why doesn't that happen all the time? Our eyes are always moving. Exactly. Yeah. Do you know what that's called? Eye movement. It is called eye movement, but it's also got a more scientific name called saccades. And they are rapid movements that you make four to five times a second. So that's quarter of a million times a day. So every time your eyes are moving, you don't even notice it's happening. You're refreshing the scene and taking all this detail again. Your brain blocks any visual processing when you saccade. Um, so if you look in a mirror, you can't see your own eyes moving, can you? Mm-mm. But what it means that we're technically blind for a small moment each time we do it. And as we're doing it four or five times a second, we might be blind for up to 40 minutes a day. What? I know, it's mad, isn't it? That's a lot of your life that you're actually blind. 
luckily all of this happens automatically and our eyes are amazing at capturing just the right image at just the right time and these movements aren't random either because if you need something in your peripheral vision your eye will automatically go and see oh what's going on over there and what's really weird is it can also happen by what you're listening to so if i start saying telling you a story that there's birds flying up in the sky and all sorts of things, your eyes will just naturally cicade upwards. Or if I tell you a story about things happening down by your feet, you'll start cicading down more just by what you're being told. So as well as cicading, our eyes will automatically jump to different points of interest. Um, and that's called the vestibuloocular reflex. Mm -hmm. Which I think I pronounced very badly. Granny's going to turn me off again. Um, <laughs> Now, it's briefly called Perkinji's reflex, and he was a Czech anatomist, and he built his own rotating chair, like the spinning chair, which he used to test the limits of vision. So he'd sit in there and get the spanner around really, really quick until he became sick, see what would happen, and did all these other sorts of crazy experiments. To see what would happen. <laughs> yeah. So motion is really important to sight, and the first image-forming eyes, they actually evolved to detect motion and not objects specifically. Like you mentioned about insect eyes. Yeah. And how movement's important there. Um, so if you think of rabbits, like the one in front of you, I mean, they're brilliant at seeing movement, maybe a fox or something, but actually their general vision's really cloudy. But what if you can actually move your eyes? You're about to see. You won't be able to see, yeah. Um, you might be like Ernst Mark, and he actually put potty under his eyelids to stop them moving. <laughs> or, or maybe the student who was discovered in 1995 who said she couldn't move her eyes. So when uh, two scientists, uh, John Findlay and Ian Gilchrist, heard about that, uh, they invited her in to examine her, really. And she actually twitched her head like a bird because she had basically had to mimic cicading with her own physical movement. It's like really weird. So uh, do birds not have cicading? I don't know, actually. They might have some cicading, but I think their twitching is an important part of how yeah they keep their vision working. So they've got big eyes that stick out a bit, don't they? Mm -hmm. The size of their heads. Um, but back to rods and cones. I mean, how do they actually capture light? Um, to find this out, we're going to need a rabbit. Rabbit acquired. Rabbit acquired. Fantastic. What's your rabbit called? Flopsy. <laughs> Is your rabbit real? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we had to dig it out. <laughs> we did. Um, so... It's 1851 and the German physiologist Heinrich Müller, he actually noticed a red pigment in the eyes of frogs and squid. Um, but it would take his young compatriot, Franz Christian Boll, to find its source. Now, he observed frogs' eyes and he saw that the pigment would fade after about one minute when they died. Um, however, if you kept dead frogs in the dark, it'd take 24 hours for this pigment in the eye to fade. Um, so he thought, OK, this must have something to do with the vision. And he called it visual red. And this is the light-sensitive pigment that we today call rhodopsin. So when you look at the sun or something, or a bright light, you know, you get that retinal image. Mm -hmm. That's the pigment. Oh, so when you look around again, it stays there for a bit. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that's the pigment in um, your rods and canes reacting to the light. And it would take his successor, Wilhelm um, Kintney. Uh, Kint I've been doing German on Duolingo. Uh, TH is usually like a T, I think. Kintner. Kintner. Yeah, Kintner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> his, professor, his professor, his successor, Wilhelm Kintner, to unlock the mysteries. Uh, because 1800s Germany was a real hotbed of vision research. Um, so the first thing that he realised was that this pigment wasn't really red, it was purple. Then on the 16th of November, 
1880, when a young man, like a, a criminal, he was beheaded by the guillotine, and um, his body was taken to Kintana, and he already had this darkened room set up. And the only light that came through was through some red and yellow glass stained windows. So he really quickly extracted the eyes so he could dissect them, looking for an imprint captured on the back of the retina, almost like a photograph in the light-sensitive pigment. Mm -hmm. It'd be the last image seen by a living eye, something that he called an optogram. I remember these. We um we did sight. I remember you talking to me about this a while ago, and I remember in art we were learning about like photography stuff. Okay. And the, I don't think this specific thing of dropping out someone's eye came up in art <laughs> photography, <laughs> but a similar sort of way of photography was done. And oh no, maybe with the rabbit they did mention a rabbit maybe with the um an imprint. Well, speaking of the rabbit, um, can you very carefully lift up the towel next to you, please? The towel? Yes. And um, what? Well, because there's something underneath it. Because as well as a rabbit, we need a... Oh, my God. A sharp knife. What? <laughs> Be very careful. Um, so this wasn't the first optogram that Kintney had made. Uh, because in an earlier experiment, he had actually covered a rabbit with a towel or a cloth. So can you do that, please? <laughs> okay. So now the rabbit is starting to go uh, become acclimatised to the dark. So once that happened for a while and all the pigments in the eyes had a chance to reset, um, he then removed the towel and the rabbit would then be staring at something and he kept its head very, very still so it couldn't move its head. So I'm guessing they can't cicade much. Very, very good. And then he quickly chopped off the rabbit's head <laughs> and plucked out the eyes and cut them in half and stuck them in some owl solution, which I don't actually have. But this will fix the rhodopsin. And then he used that to capture the image of the bars that the rabbit had been looking at actually on the retina, imprinted on the eye. So he then proved that these pigments are how the eye will capture light and dark. That's cool. All right, let's take a break there. I'm going to put the knife back. Okay, we're back and we've been to the rabbit. I've cleaned the blade. And the only thing left to do is finish the podcast. Yeah, so let's get on with it. There's no blood left around you, is there? Oh, wait. Last little bit. Wipe it clean. Actually, that, that's reminds me of something. <laughs> because that's a bit like a crime scene. And there was a book written with this idea of the... What's I call them? The optograms. Mm -hmm. And Oh, the corpses could have like the picture of... It was or something on it. Exactly, yeah, the killer's face in the story. But what gets really, really horrific is some... I think there was a film made of it as well. And I think it's in Mexico. Somebody watched this film and she killed her husband or something. Yeah. And she pulled out the eyes thinking that they would have like had her face etched on them at the moment of death. Pretty gruesome. So that's yeah. why you've got to be careful with science. <laughs> This is this is a family friendly podcast. It's a PG, but it's not directed at kids. So we probably should have said that before the show, but too late now. Yeah, too late now. Anyway, the rabbit's in the bin. <laughs> yes, yeah, the rabbit's gone. Okay, so let's go back to Rhodopsin, shall we? So how does that actually work? Well, we're going to need to meet yet another person, and this is George Wilde, and he was born in 1906 in New York, and he's the son of some Polish immigrants. And... 
he moved to Germany, naturally, as that was the hotbed for vision research for his studies in 1932. But what was going on in Germany around that time, Anton? Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yeah, Adolf Hitler came to power. <laughs> this, was, uh... this is not good. <laughs> But that's, I was expecting a little bit more from you rather than just his name there. <laughs> you only need his name. I think I most suppose, people yeah. know who he is. That's very true, actually. Yeah, he's done quite well for himself, actually. Oh, shut up. Good re- well, not a good reputation. He's well known. He's got a terrible reputation. <laughs> so I'm right you say. This is so risky. We're gonna we're gonna lose some followers and gain the wrong ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so there's a lot of political uncertainty um, around at the time, but that actually gave um, Wald quite a good opportunity in the form of 300 frogs, which had been delivered to the university where he was working, because um, his supervisor um, was a man called Motto, Motto? Otto Meyerhoff, and he was a Jew, so he was rightly really nervous at the time, so he, he went into hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all these frogs, it allowed Wald to replete Kinsney's, Kitner. Kitner. Yeah, Kitner allowed him to repeat Kitner's tests. Um, and he actually watched as the rhodopsin went from purple and then to yellow and then to transparent as it reacted and was bleached by the light. Um, and then he also observed that in the dark, it then turned back to the original purple colour. And it was already known that a deficiency in vitamin A led to poor eyesight. So when Wald tested the bleached rhodopsin, he actually found that it was pure vitamin A in the eye. Mm. When exposed to light, a biochemical process actually transforms rhodopsin into vitamin A. Then over time, the body will need new vitamin A to replace what has been lost during this process. And actually, all animals, it doesn't matter if you're an insect, a bird, a mammal, a lobster, humans, wasps, we actually all use rhodopsin. It's the same process. And we all descend from one common ancestor 600 million years ago, which gave us this incredible gift of light, light sensitivity. And... The process of rhodopsin has hardly changed in that time. So it's incredible, even with like these 40 or 60 different types of eyes evolving, all mm. in the same process. Must be pretty good then. It's very effective, works really well. So I think you're starting to get quite a good idea of how eyes see, aren't you? Yes. So light enters into our eye, then we've got muscles in our eye, which change the size of our pupil and allow us to focus light on our retina. And like any muscle, that needs to be exercised. And there was evidence that um, kids during school time, they would become more short-sighted. Why? Because they'd be looking at books and things close up to them. And then during the holidays, they would become more long-sighted or or regular-sighted again. Yeah. Although that's probably changed these days with the kids looking at phones all the time. Yeah. So in our eyes, we've got our rods and our cones, and they contain rhodopsin. That is sensitive to different wavelengths of light and that enables us to see different colours. Now, really interestingly, blue light actually comes into focus about one millimetre in front of our retina. So it's never perfectly sharp because there's a different wavelength of light to the red and the green. It's going to focus at a different position. And then our eyes will also automatically move and focus and they will react for us. And like we said, static objects just disappear. Uh, But what happens next in our vision? I mean, it doesn't stop in the eye, it only begins there. So we need to go back in time again, uh, or rather, we need to find a time-travelling fossil, the horseshoe crab. Do you know who they are? A horseshoe crab. It yeah. looks a bit like um, a, a weird-looking lollipop picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're what's called a living fossil, and they're, they've been around for 450 million years. They are the closest living relatives to our trilobite friends who we met earlier. And what colour blood do you think they have? Blue. 
Yeah, do you know that? I'm just skilled. It's an amazing colour blue, though. It's that really, really actually... bright. Now, their blood contains loads of immune cells, and they're really sensitive to loads of toxins, so we will actually milk these crabs and use it to test vaccines for toxicity. Mm-hmm. So they're really important, but it's not a particularly nice process. No, it doesn't look it. But it's not actually their blood that we're after today. So we've had enough of that with the rabbit. It's their <laughs> eyes that we're interested in. So they also have compound eyes, uh, but their photoreceptors are 100 times larger than ours. That makes, us, uh, makes it really easy for us to study them. Um, and they're connected to the brain via the optic nerve. Now, in 1932, Kiefer Hartline, he managed to actually record the activity of a single one of those nerve fibres that was going from the eye. Um, we've got John Dowling here, who was talking about when he met George Wald and Kiefer Hartline. He described that as one day he said, I always used to do my experiments in the dark, as most of us who work on the a vision do because you want to have a constant environment so he said one day he said uh, I was sitting there recording from an optic single optic nerve fiber coming from from the eye and uh, somebody walked into the room and turned on the light and he said you know they've added more light to the preparation but the activity went down he said I turned off the lights the activity went up I turned on the lights they went down and he said gee, there must be some interactions going on in the eye. And pretty soon was able to show that there is this reciprocal lateral inhibition between the amatidia, which are mediated by very fine nerve processes that come off the optic nerve and run laterally in the eye. And they've been identified anatomically and so on and so forth. And that really began the real important contribution that he made of lateral inhibition explaining the mock band phenomenon. Okay, so it's a bit of an odd process. You'll just think that with more light, you're going to get more activity in the eye, aren't you? Mm. Um, so do you know what he meant by like this lateral link? Not really. So it actually means that individual photoreceptor cells in your eyes are linked together and they can communicate with each other because sunlight... It's a million times brighter than starlight. Um, but even in that massive range of lighting, we can actually see well, can't we? Well, we can't see well at dark, but we can still see some detail, can't we, at starlight or moonlight? Yeah. And you would think that if something's a million times brighter during the day, it's going to burn out our eyes, isn't it? So that means that our eyes must be really good at actually adapting to broad ranges of light. It's not just an absolute scale. So he mentioned MAC bands there. You would have seen these diagrams or you would have seen it in the past where say if you've got stripes of grey, different grey bars next to each other, they don't look a flat colour, do they? When you have a mid-grey next to a lighter grey, it looks darker on that side. And then next to a dark grey, it looks lighter, doesn't it? It's hard to explain. We'll have a picture in the show notes. Sort of. I just see it as a solid colour. So the way that this works is your photoreceptor cells, they don't actually work alone. They'll work as groups. And they will communicate together. And then, say, if one cell gets really sensitive to light, its neighbours will adapt to either get less or more sensitive. And then that allows us to see all this relative contrast. So what happened after studying horseshoe crabs, he'd then move on to frogs next. And he discovered that rather than having a single layer of nerve cells, they would have many, many layers going back from your eye towards your brain. Then at each of these different layers, they would actually detect different things and have a different function. Like some might be 
is what this cell is looking at getting lighter is it getting darker is it moving what color is it and then over each kind of layer they'll be more and more processed if you think of all the stuff that you're seeing through your eyes or 120 million photoreceptor cells in our eye but you only have 1 million nerve fibers so that information has to be made 120 times smaller doesn't it Mm -hmm. must be compressed together and just the really important information has to be sent through to your brain and then that's what your nerve cells and all these layers in your eyes are doing behind your retina and it's really optimizing what you're seeing and then working together so all of your cones around the outside of your eye cones on the inside all of your rods around the outside of your eye mm-hmm. which are the ones that are more light sensitive they work together so you might have say 10 of them or 100 or whatever clustered together combining their information to make it more light sensitive because it's getting information from lots of cells yeah yeah and that's why your vision looks grainy in the dark yeah okay it gets so sensitive that you could actually see a single candle burning over 25 kilometers away so there's laser processing happening before even your brain starts to interpret what you're seeing so i think it's time to hand over to you again and find out a few things that might have happened when your eyes go wrong and some ancient remedies i've got some very humane and nice ancient medical practices and odd remedies people used to use um so we've already chopped open a rabbit um but now we're going to be chopping open some humans as well i imagine oh nice uh how long ago do you think the first eye operations happened it seems like it should be quite recent in some ways but i'm sure people used to experiment it experiment with it quite a long time ago well, basically, as soon as you get a sharp stone. <laughs> there are records from Egypt dating back to 2500 BC to remove cataracts. Wow, that's crazy. Poppy seeds, or some other opioid, uh, would be chewed up and spat into the patient's eye to reduce the pain. That's, that's nice. A couching needle would then be used to dislodge the cataract until it came loose and would be pushed into the eye. What, actually into it? Yeah, so it'd just be rattling around in there. Ah. Uh. It's like if a coin was wedged between something, or if you've if you've had um, a board game or something, and you have the cardboard pop out things, it's like you've pushed. <laughs> it's like you've pushed one of those, um, <laughs> into the box. You've ruined my life because I love pushing those things out. I find it so therapeutic, but now I'm gonna be traumatized. Without a cataract, vision would be very blurry as the eye can't focus the light. It was a dangerous procedure, and the operation was also just as likely to blind you to, to cure you. <laughs> or, or kill you. <laughs> or kill you, yeah. There must be so many infections and things. Um, and you got some needles that they used to. We'll put these in the show notes. That looks horrific. Yeah. Okay, so um, you've just blinded me. So is there any way you can make me see again? The Egyptians would mash up two pig's eyes and mix them with red lead and wild honey to make a powder. Because you're trying to cure the eyes, they would pour the mixture into your ear, obviously. (laughs) And then you'd like jiggle around a bit, probably, get it into your eyes. You can hear your cat, your whatever you pushed into your eye moving. (laughs) Yes. They would say, I have brought this thing and put it in its place. The crocodile is weak and powerless. Okay, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) I've put it in its place in the ear so you can see again. But that didn't work. Oh. There is a cure, another cure, 
There is another cure, though, for night blindness. This is an inability to see well at night or in poor lighting. I a think, rare case. I think I've got that. I don't see very well at night. <laughs> no? Oh. Well, well, we'll perform this later. Oh, God. Several texts describe similar procedures. One from 1500 BC says to take roasted ox liver and press it to the eye. Another from 1825 BC tells woman who cannot see to eat the raw liver of an arse. <laughs> I mean, an ass. Ah, thank you. Greek texts such as Galen would recommend raw liver soaked in honey. To me, taken once or twice a day by mouth. Or the continuous eating of goat's livers. I'm seeing a theme here. Livers. <laughs> and it's not just old remedies. Similar treatments are still used today. Why would that be? Because, like you said, with the... Um... Rhodopsin. Yep. <laughs> um, it's made of vitamin A. The liver is a rich source of vitamin A, and we need enough of it for healthy eyes. Ah, so there's actually maybe some truth in these old, like, fake remedies. Yep, just cross your eye. <laughs> <laughs> but we've actually come a long way since those experiments, haven't we? <laughs> I would hope well, so. I hope so, yeah. Yeah. Half the time back then, they didn't even have a clue what the problem was, but they'd even, they're still trying to do something to fix it. A little bit scary. Um, but today we know a lot more about how sight works and we've actually gone beyond just trying to fix the eye uh, by cutting bits out of it to trying to restore sight through adding things such as neural brain implants. In the future we could actually be looking at humans with beyond like regular sight and special abilities that we can't even imagine today. So remember how at the start of the episode I told you to relax Antonin, to please your eyes. So, wait, 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 wait. You said that we can have laser eyes earlier as well. Does that mean with these neural implants, mm -hmm. we can have laser eyes? Maybe. Mm. So, Anton, close your eyes. Okay, now I'm sure you're going to feel really relaxed after some of the medical experiments that we've described today. Now, I want you to remain very still and calm as you listen to my voice. I am actually still here. I'm just rearranging my window so I can see what I need to do. One moment. Keep calm. This is trickier than I hoped. Okay. Good. Just listen to my voice. Now, whatever you do, do not move. You must keep your head perfectly still. Now, you might just feel me by your left ear. Okay? Remember, keep still. I'm just going to start drilling through your skull. Very good. Very, very good. This shouldn't hurt too much because I spat some <laughs> poppy seeds yeah. onto you. No, I just... a thing. Now, I'm going to move over to the right-hand side. Now, keep still. Just going to mop up a little bit of the blood. A little hole in here. Now, this is actually revenge for episode one where you gave me brain surgery. A little bit of squishing and stuff there, but don't worry about it. That's just fluid leaving your brain. Okay, so what I've done is I have carefully cut some openings into your skull. You may open your eyes now, basically. Oh, God, that was a slowly. <laughs> um, and I have inserted some wires very finely into your visual cortex, and they will actually allow me to take signals from a camera outside your body 
directly into your brain. But you're also going to need a special box containing a computer to interpret the signal into something that your brain understands. We will also have to train your brain to understand this new information that's going to be sent to it. So this might sound like science fiction, but it's not. Because back in 17th of January 2000, I bet that sounds a long time ago to you. Wow. William H. Dobell, or Double Dobell, he announced to the world that he had restored sight to a patient. And it wasn't perfect, and it wasn't without its problems. Now, in his book, Tomorrowland, Stephen Kotler, he actually got to meet Debell and a man called Patient Alpha during a really critical stage of this, this process. Oh, I think I remember hearing about this as well. I think you have, yeah. I think we've listened to something on this. So he had actually been writing this book and he had been trying to find out about um, like brain implants and restoring sight. And he thought that what he was about to witness was impossible as he had found nothing to this level with everybody he had spoken to. So patient Alpha, he's 39 years old and he's a tall, strong man, but he lost his sight due to a series of unfortunate accidents. We now know today that his name is Jens. And he was sat in a chair being watched by Debell and his assistants. And from his head, there's some wires trailing out to these machines and computers around him. And um, in his head are some plugs where yeah. the cables, like, like a um, headphone cable, plugged into his skull and the surgery is so good that you can barely well you, you can't see almost where the, the metal ends and the flesh begins it's so clean and he's got a small camera mounted on some glasses on his face so the electrodes are turned on and they start to run through a series of tests and Jens describes what he can see he says he can see like a medium-sized phosphate about five inches from his face then another this one's too bright and they're all different shapes and sizes, like some are shaped like bananas and all sorts of stars in his vision. And what they're starting to do is map the result from this video feed to his brain um, and calibrating it. But suddenly things go wrong and patient Alpha's face goes white and his hands curl up into claws and they start slowly rising into the air. And then he arches his back and his neck's craning and his legs are twitching and convulsing. And he's been overstimulated and he's starting to have a fit. It's his brain that, that's like put too much into it. And now Debell, he actually refuses any request to call for help. Because they're saying, look, we've got to call like an ambulance or something and help him. But Debell's like, no, he stops that happening. And um, it takes about five minutes for Jen's breathing to return to normal. And he, he sort of groggily wakes up and he asks Debell what's happened. And Debell shows him no sympathy and it, telling him that it'll be fine. Um, and that they'll terminate the day's proceedings. But over the following few days, Jen keeps coming back to have his sight restored. And like hour by hour, day by day, it improves. And the picture becomes more and more detailed as they calibrate these sensors and his brain and everything all together. Um, but it's not like regular sight. It's nowhere near as close to the resolution that we see. And it's also only one frame a second that, that he manages to perceive. And they put an item like a telephone or something on the desk. It takes him several minutes to find it. But then after only 30 minutes of practicing, he can find it in under 10 seconds on the desk, no matter where it is, and pick it up. And by the end of the training, he can actually drive a car around a car park. <laughs> Not safely on the road, but he's gone from being able to see nothing at all to being able to drive. Now, what I described there, that's over 20 years ago. Then if you look at your phone and think how advanced cameras and electronics and things have come in that time so I couldn't imagine a phone like that 20 years ago um, just imagine how far we could go today with our quality of like implants and vision uh, 
Um, but it's actually really difficult to perform these experiments um, because you have to pass through all the regulation. And then um, the operation that Jen had for his implants was performed in Portugal as the procedure wasn't allowed in the US. Mm-hmm. And Abel, he's a bit of a maverick. And uh, he, I think he funded a lot of it through making uh, prosthetic limbs and different implants for people. He's like an amazing inventor, but also maybe slightly crazy scientist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, Neuralink and things like Elon Musk and different people are trying. It seems to be a bit of a renaissance in this type of science. And they all seem to be crazy if they're working on it. <laughs> yes, maybe. But perhaps you need that right at the fringes of society. Perhaps you need people who are willing to take that risk. But we, we've got a new co-host, don't we? Do we? Yeah. We've got a new co-host. Oh. And we're going to introduce them to you now, and we're going to ask them what their thoughts on the future of brain implants and um, artificial vision. Hello, could you tell us all about what you think the future of artificial vision um, will be, eye implants, brain implants, and any problems or solutions that it may present? The future of artificial vision is quite exciting, with several advancements on the horizon. Eye and brain implants are key areas of development. Eye implants, like bionic eyes, could restore or enhance vision. They might use tiny cameras or sensors that send signals to the brain, helping those with visual impairments. Uh, These implants might even offer capabilities beyond normal vision, like zooming or night vision. Brain implants take a different approach. They might bypass the eyes entirely, stimulating the visual cortex directly. This method could help people who have lost their eyes or have damaged optic nerves. However, there are challenges and considerations. For one, the technology needs to be safe and reliable. Um, It's also important to ensure it's accessible and not just available to a privileged few. Ethical concerns like the potential for surveillance or privacy breaches are also crucial. Uh, In terms of solutions, ongoing research and trials are key. Collaborations between tech companies, medical researchers, and ethical boards can ensure the technology develops responsibly and benefits as many as possible. The integration of artificial intelligence with these implants could enhance their capabilities, but it's essential to balance technological advancement with ethical considerations and societal impact. I think you've raised some very good points there, but Anton wanted to know, um, are we going to get laser eyes? Ah, the idea of laser eyes, often seen in science fiction, is a fascinating concept. Uh, While the idea sounds like it's straight out of a superhero movie, in reality, the development of laser eyes as a form of artificial vision is highly unlikely in the near future. The main focus of current artificial vision technology is to restore or enhance normal visual capabilities. This includes improving sight for those with visual impairments or adding functionalities like zoom or enhanced night vision. The development of laser emitting eyes would involve significant challenges both technically and ethically. Technically, integrating lasers powerful enough to be useful while ensuring they are safe for both the user and others would be extremely complex. Ethically, the idea of weaponizing a human capability raises significant concerns. In short, while technology is advancing rapidly, the focus remains on medically beneficial enhancements rather than the kind of fantastical abilities seen in comics or movies. So what do you make of that, Anton? That's our new AI co-host. The co-host is alright, but he upset me because he said that there's not going to be laser eyes soon. I know, I saw your little face drop when he told you that. Uh, Actually... 
that makes me think a little bit about other things that we might have in the future with the augmented reality. So imagine you've got contact lenses in your eyes that augment what you see, along with a combination of AI, where everything you look at, it could be like Google Vision, where you look at the Eiffel Tower, and because obviously you don't know what that is, overlay in text over the top of it, Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it might tell you how big it is or when it was built, which in some ways is quite interesting. But is that destroying our sense of discovery? Or imagine you meet somebody for the first time and it tells you their favourite food, their age, their name and everything. It might be destroying conversations. Or or one thought I had is people like to do avatars. Or you, imagine everybody's got a Snapchat filter on all the time. Yeah. And that's what you see. You never see the real person. You just see an avatar. Oh, yeah. Anyway... Good episode. Yeah, so uh, that's the end of our episode. But I think it shows how important it is to follow good scientific processes um, to really get an understanding of the world, doesn't it? Don't just go off with ideas like the Greeks did, but also um, how, even with that, sometimes the experiments that we've used to get where we are today might not necessarily be the most ethical in some cases, but is that the right thing to do or not? What do you reckon, Anton? Do you think we sometimes need those renegades to push us forwards? Sorry, I'm just shocked because the pictures change colours for me. Oh, okay, yeah. So this is the picture of the dress. What what colour do you see it? Well, before you just scrolled away from it and uh-huh. scrolled back, I saw it for the first time ever as the gold and white for the first time. And then you just uh-huh. scrolled away and scrolled back and now it's black and blue. Black and blue, yeah. So this is, you probably would have heard the address that did the rounds on the internet a few years ago and it's about how we perceive colour and we're actually going to do a little bonus feature I think on how we perceive colour and how the dress works and why some people see it as gold and white and some people see it as blue and black um, so look out for that episode soon um, on our Patreon probably Anton so you can tell them Yay! We've got a Patreon we release like a little bonus episode after most of our episodes um, yeah you can support for, I think, $1, just to be nice. Yeah. There's a $5, which I think... Well, with the $1, you get some little rewards and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the $5, you get a whole episode. Yeah, you get the bonus. Yeah. yeah. And with the $10, you get, like, some videos or extras. Like, you mentioned much, much, much earlier where you said some animals have multiple types of eye. Um, we've got some sea monkeys yes which we might do like a mini documentary on potentially and that, I think that would be in the ten, the ten dollar yeah yeah because uh, sea monkeys actually have two different types of eye and we've been growing some we've even got our first generation of babies don't we yep but no more spoilers no more spoilers no you have to get uh, subscribe to our Patreon yeah yeah and that will help support us and mean that we can record more often and um, yeah bring more cool stuff to you um, as well as support us on Patreon you can do what on social media Anton? you can follow us on Twitter X uh-huh. at Curie Child Pod Instagram at Curie Child Pod Facebook uh, yeah we're on Facebook as well yeah <laughs> um, what well, else? well a really good thing to do would be to uh, write and either review somewhere or rate us on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify because that really helps to get the word out um, or tell a friend about the show or share us um, yeah and we've got a YouTube channel we've got all of our episodes on there and a few bonus like extras 
little fact. Yeah, you've been doing some shorts for that, haven't you, which are really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, thank you very much. Sorry it's been so long since we last recorded. We do still love you, um, despite the absence. But it's been due to us talking about intelligent speech, um, which will be live on the feed in a couple of months' time. Yeah. Where we spoke about the Vavilov Institute, and that was really cool. Um, and, yeah, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Love you. Our eyes are soft and squishy with muscles that... Sorry, I was squishing my eyes. Yeah, that was a bit weird. That's not staying in the podcast. (laughs)